Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now today's message. Well, good morning again, and welcome to a really, really hot Sunday. You guys cool enough in here? Yeah, praise the Lord for air conditioning, right? Great to see you. Uh, Join me in Revelation chapter 20. If you're a guest with us, my name's Joel. I'm one of the pastors here. And we are now five weeks from the end of a series called Unveiled Glory that we began all the way back the second week in January. And as we begin to kind of hit that home stretch and head toward the end, my prayer is that you have been blessed, that you have learned, that you have been empowered, that you have been encouraged half as much uh, by the end result as I have been in just plunging into this text and into the scholarship and preparing these series of messages for you. Uh, I, I just feel enormous blessing. Uh, to have been able to do that. But today, uh, we have a bit of an awkward interlude uh, as we get toward the end of Revelation chapter 20. There's some wonderful visions coming, but not before this this kind of awkward one that Pastor Phil read for us at the outset of our time together. And it requires a a little bit of a pause, because if you want to turn an otherwise normal conversation into a moment of really awkward silence, just talk about hell. Right? I mean, just, just bring up the fact in everyday conversation, uh, or if you're talking, you know, so if you're in a group of people and you're waxing philosophically and you just, you just admit to anybody in the wider culture that, that you believe, number one, that there's just a singular way to a singular creator, that that way is through the death and the resurrection of Jesus that absorbs our sin and, and reinstates our eternal purpose, and that anybody who rejects that message is going to spend eternity in hell. If that doesn't end the conversation, it's surely going to get you a ejected from it. Like people are going to do this. Like, oh yeah. Well, anyway, let me, let me, right. I mean, it's awkward. And and it's even awkward for those of us who believe it with all of our hearts, because we live in this modern world that that tempts us with this, this need to feel inclusive and and far more enlightened than anybody who, who ever came before us. And, and so the whole idea of hell just kind of throws a monkey wrench into that. At least on the surface, it seems to to set us back. And so uh, even for for followers of Jesus, we read these words, we know they are God's words, we believe them, but we're tempted to react in bewilderment, maybe even a little bit of embarrassment. Like, what do we do with this? And then further complicating this are some of our whacked out brothers and sisters. Listen, every family's got a crazy drunk uncle or two, and Christians are no different, right? Right? Uh, And so you get some of these wild-haired fundamentalist preachers that talk about hell in a way that makes them seem like they're happy people are going there. And and it kind of leaves us with this moment of like, you know, do we, you know, let's just be honest, like, is scaring the hell out of people really the business of the church? Like, is that, is that what we're supposed to be doing exactly? And so I want to start this morning with that question because we have to acknowledge it. Number one, because God's word deals with it here very plainly, but, but Also because more and more people are asking those kinds of questions, and that would include, I have no doubt, people in this room, people that love Jesus, people that love his word, but they're bewildered, they're shocked, they they struggle internally with, with several things. Can a loving God actually send people to hell? 
I mean, does that God even exist? And there's a couple of primary ways that 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 question has been asked, or or at least that that, that the issue has been addressed. One is to say, well, I, I just don't see how a God of judgment, like the kind of judgment that we just read about here, like my Pastor Joel, my, my spine tingled when Pastor Phil read that. I mean, can this really be true? Can that God really exist? And the late C.S. Lewis was the one who spoke of our tendency in the modern age to think that we can, and I'm quoting Lewis here, subdue reality to the wishes of men, including removing any part of the transcendent order that we don't understand. Uh, and he said that new confidence given to us mostly by the scientific method, which by and large is a very good thing, but, but it developed into a level of pride in which we think ourselves able to reshape any claim that we don't find pleasant, even if that claim is real. And so sometimes it comes out this way. I just don't conceive that judgment, especially eternal judgment, can exist within a God who calls himself love. You ever asked yourself that question? Like if God is love, how can he do the kinds of things? How can he even permit the kinds of things that we read about here? Just awful things. It's an understandable question, but, but here's the thing. When we ask that question, we are in asking that question, denying something, even if we don't realize it at the moment, not only about our creator, but about all of us who are created in his image. All of us are capable of love and wrath. And there have been moments in which those two have coexisted in the same moment, have they not? In your soul. And, and there are moments, yes, admittedly, where we go back and you go, yeah, I sinned in that moment. I blew it. And but there are also moments where we go back and we go, hey, that was wrong and I was right to be angry about it, righteously angry about it. My wrath was right. Uh, there's, there's actually a 300-page report releasing at 4 o'clock this afternoon uh, from one of the networks that you and I associate ourselves with, dealing with sexual abuse in churches. And one of the things that, that's difficult sometimes is, is having someone who's been a victim of that finally come to the conclusion, not only that it's okay to be angry, but it's actually righteous to be angry at that kind of injustice. Or let's just think about something similar, like a, a mama bear, all right? Several months ago, we had a bunch of baby bellies running around here. Now we got babies that have replaced those bellies, it's fun. I love watching that happen in this church, mostly because I'm almost old enough to be a grandpa now and I don't have to change her diapers, but, but I love watching that. And I'm, I'm gonna tell you, there, there's some young women in this room right now and are part of this church family that are feeling something they've never felt before, aren't they, ladies? A level of vigilance coupled with seething violence right up underneath there. What's that for? That's for guarding that little one. I'm not saying the dads don't have it either. I'm just saying it tends to be more instinctual in moms. What's going on with that mama bear mentality that when she starts perceiving something as a threat, what, what's driving her in that moment? But love. Love is driving her. But love drives her to do what? Well, we would say, well, the only appropriate thing would be wrath, Right? And so when we think about this, transpose this up into God, we, we've got we to broaden our minds a little bit here. Let's not deny something that's even true of ourselves. All loving persons are filled with wrath. Fact is, a God of true love 
who loves me, loves you, cannot, that God cannot exist unless there is also a corresponding wrath in him that opposes the evil and the injustice in the world that has affected us in the way that we see every day. A God of love can't exist without that opposition because of the peace that it destroys. Now, here's another question that comes out. But aren't love and, Pastor, we're not just talking about wrath, we're talking about hell. Aren't love and the idea of eternal hell incompatible? Well, that's a fair question because we're talking about eternal judgment here. It never ends. And here's what I would submit to you, at least by way of introduction. These are deep questions. They, some of you are going to continue to struggle with these questions as you leave here today. That is okay. All right? It's okay. Just don't let go of him. Just don't turn away from him. You keep fighting as long as you want. All right? Don't let go of him. Let me, let me just suggest this, though. The punishment, even in our own system of justice, often coincides with the dignity of the victim, doesn't it? So if, some of, if one of you murders me, and you're caught, and the evidence is put forward, and you're found guilty, you're going to be punished. And you're going to be punished severely because you murdered me. But if you murder a United States senator, it's worse, isn't it? Right? Because there, there, there's a level, right? That's not just because that's perceived not just as an attack on an individual, but attack on a governing authority. We would say as Christians, an attack on God-ordained authority. So there's a level in which the punishment fits the crime. That doesn't mean I, as a human being, am less important or less created in God's image or less, less, have less dignity than a U.S. senator, but, but it does mean punishment fits the crime in these kinds of situations. So, so with that understanding in mind, let me ask you, uh, what other kind of a punishment is appropriate for offenses against an infinite being unless they are also infinite? Just some things to throw out here. And, and let me throw one final thing in here before we get to our text this morning. Here, here's Because this is just the truth. What separates us from God in the first place is us. So let's be careful not to gaslight our creator. Let's be careful with this. All right? When it, it, the ultimate separation from the loving presence of God is the very definition of hell. And when you and I choose our sin over our creator, we have chosen in that moment to be separated from our creator. That's on us. That's not on him. The belief, this is what Tim Keller says, the belief in a God of pure love who accepts everyone and judges no one is a powerful act of faith. Think about that for a minute. Not only is there no evidence for it in the natural order, by that he just means there are consequences uh, to evil even embedded in nature itself. And we see that, but there's almost no historical religious textual support for it outside of Christianity. In fact, the more one looks at it, the less justified it appears. So again, just a few thoughts as we open today. I'm not trying to convince you fully and finally if you still have doubts in your own mind. I know this is a subject that is much deeper than the less than five minutes I've taken to deal with it. You deserve far more than just trite answers. It's all I can do today, but I do want to put these thoughts in your mind, especially as we open God's Word today. I want you to consider these arguments so that you don't merely dismiss these warnings because God's Word tells us hell is real. Matthew puts it this way. Matthew 25, 46, and these will go away into eternal, that means never-ending, 
punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And so as we approach the end of Revelation, the end of the apocalypse, we're given this vision of this reality in its final state, and there are a series of motivations that rise out of this. I'll give you five of them in just a moment. But the overall point of these verses is that there is a certainty of eternal punishment in Scripture. Look at Revelation 20.10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophets are. So all those characters and, and visions that we saw earlier in the text, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. In Matthew 25.41, Jesus tells us that hell was prepared for that moment, primarily for the devil and his angels, and we see here a description of that end and how it's going to come about, that there's going to be this final confrontation communicated to us in the vision of a battle. We saw that last week. Fire comes down, uh, and they are thrown down. Remember earlier in the series, we discussed it in the beginning. There was a war in heaven between Satan, and, and, and Satan was bounced out of heaven. You see it happening here, again, for one, one final time. One final stand, one final humiliating defeat, followed by a hurling into a lake of fire that burns, the Greek text actually says, for ages and ages. That's how the Greek writers express the idea of eternity, forever. So hell, according to Scripture, exists, and according to Scripture, it lasts forever. You say, well, but isn't this symbolism? Yes, it is. Right. Could you, Pastor, I remember you saying from the beginning of Revelation, it cannot mean to us what it did not mean to them, that Revelation was written in symbolic language. It, it wasn't written in literal language. So should we take this symbolically? Probably. Probably. So this is not a literal fire. Probably not. You go, well, before you wipe your brow off, let me put it this way. Every other vision we've been given in this book from chapter 1, verse 1, was intended to illustrate something far more powerful than the image itself. Okay? So when Jesus has eyes of fire, that doesn't literally mean there's fire coming out of his eye sockets. It means he is penetrating. There's nothing he doesn't see into. You see a, a, a gorgeous prostitute on a beast, that's a sign of the opulence and the highly tempting world system that beckons to us. Come to me and I'll give you this or, or I'll give you that. I'll make life easy for you. And so in every vision we're given in Revelation, the intent is to communicate a spiritual reality that is actually far worse than the actual vision being communicated. And so should we assume that's also true here? Is this real fire? Ultimately, I don't know. But here's what I do know. I cannot imagine anything worse, anything more horrific, anything more traumatic, anything more absolutely horrifying than dying by means of being burned alive. Except perhaps being burned alive and never dying. That's the picture we're given here. It's raw. It is uncensored, we might say. It is a, whatever is being described here, the ultimate fate literally is actually worse. So there's good news here. It's good news. These next verses describe the people who are going to join the devil in this horrible place. And we are mercifully given with abundant clarity the path out of that faith. You don't have to go there. There's not a person in this room that has to suffer that fate. You know why? Because God is love. 
First John 4 tells us that with abundant clarity. But, but we're also told that this God of love is also a God of judgment. Remember, love, wrath, coexisting. That love is what's prompting a warning about that judgment to you and me today. This reality of final judgment is a love letter to you and to me, warning us, calling us, as the rest of this apocalypse has called us, to come home to the Jesus whose glory is finally unveiled here. And so this picture should motivate us to do a number of things, five things in particular. So let me give you those in order. Motivation number one is this, escape while you can. Verse 11, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. Okay. Now this is the seventh scene in Revelation that includes a throne. So let me, let me just kind of give you the other six just by way of review. In chapter four, John is called up into a vision and he sees a throne. Chapter 7, there is this uncountable multitude gathered around a throne. Chapter 8, there's silence for about a half hour around the throne. Chapter 11, there are loud voices, and we went from quiet to loud around that throne, announcing that in that moment that, that the kingdom of Christ has overtaken every other kingdom. Chapter 16, the throne becomes the vantage point from which the church begins to see the fall of the great city of Babylon. Chapter 20, verse 4, there are thrones on which God's people sit to judge, but now there is this, a great white throne. Great, the word there is mega, the opulence that's being communicated there magnifies the biblical message that Jesus truly is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There is no greater throne than his. This throne, secondly, is also white, a color that speaks of purity and complete righteousness, which, by the way, is the basis on which God does his judging. However, you may struggle with the idea of God's judgment or hell or the incompatibility of that with some ideas about the character of God that you've read in Scripture. What, what John is telling you here is you, you go ahead and struggle with that, but here's what you need to know. Whatever God decides to do is pure. It's right. It should happen. If it doesn't happen, he won't be pure. The great throne means he is opulent, he is king of kings, he's lord of lords. This throne is white, his righteousness, that's the basis for all judgment. And the reaction to this scene, he says, the earth and the sky fled away. So everything around this throne that we saw in earlier visions is now gone. And the throne itself occupies all of the space in this vision. It's all that's left. In those previous six visions, there was something around the throne, either to give us a vantage point from the throne or a vantage point looking at the throne. In this seventh and final vision of the throne, the throne is all that there is. It means there's nowhere to hide now. There's no woods to hide in. They're gone. There's no sky to fly away. There's no earth to run across and to escape this, what's now become an inescapable judgment. You know, I've had people who, who struggle with their faith point this out to me, and, and I understand the struggle. I, I see evil every day, and it just seems like people are never going to get what's rightfully theirs. You ever noticed how inconsistent we are in that? On the one hand, we look at God's judgment, and we go, I just can't believe in a God who would ever judge that. And sometimes in the same breath, we see evil in the world and go, now why doesn't God judge that? It should be some clue to us that between us and the Lord, we're the inconsistent ones, not him. Have you ever asked yourself that question? 
Maybe you've been a victim at some point in the past, or you've seen those kinds of things. We've got a lot of law enforcement people in here. They see the worst of people every single day. You probably more than anybody else know what it's like to catch somebody, to cuff them, to jail them, to help the prosecution build all the evidence, and then to have some judge on a technicality go, yeah, you can go. And you go, when are they going to get theirs? When are people finally? Now, some of you have a greater sense of justice than others. I've been here six years. I know you, right? It's that immense, right? And that, that temptation toward just this constant outrage. But there's a side of that that, that is divine, right? I, I see people buy their way out of punishment. I see people leverage high connections. And they, they continue their corruption. And I see innocent people suffering. Well, well, part of faith, which the author of Hebrews tells us is the evidence of things we do not see, one of the things we don't yet see and have not yet seen is the full and final execution of God's judgment. Here's what you and I do have. We have this vision which tells us no one's going to escape it. It's coming one day. And the warning is to you and me, not to those people we're thinking about. It's you and me. You had better find refuge before there is none. Be sure of your calling and election. There is no refuge from Jesus. There's coming a day when the only thing that's going to be in existence is that throne from the perspective of judgment. Nowhere to hide. But in that moment, there is refuge in Jesus. So escape while you can. All right, here's motivation number two. Check your privilege. Now, just saying that triggered some of you. So let me read verse 12, and then let me tell you what I mean. And I saw the dead great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. Now, again, we, we hear that phrase, check your privilege, a lot these days. There's a sense in which it's legitimate. There's a sense in which it's not legitimate. Sometimes it's, it's just, I don't like the argument, and so I'm going to find an excuse uh, to, to try to invalidate the argument, right? Well, you're just saying that because you're a man. Well, you're just saying that because you're white. Well, you're just saying that because of this, that. Well, well, hold up. Maybe I'm saying it because it's a good argument. Just throwing that out there, right? But there's another side in which, you know what? We, don't, we haven't lived the same life as others have, right? There is a sense in which I am not a woman. It should bring you comfort, both that that is true and that I am aware of it, all right? But I'm not, all right? Which means that there are experiences that I don't have. There are probably things that I've never been subjected to that some of my sisters in Christ have. And, and there's an understanding of that, right? I am irreversibly, Casper the ghost, white, Right? And so my brothers and sisters of color, I know they've been through things I haven't been through. So, so there is something to the phrase that just tells me, hey, let me remember that I haven't been through what some other people have been through. I don't have some disadvantages that other people have. I, I, I understand that. But here, when I say check your privilege, I'm actually using the phrase in a different way. You ever heard this? Check that at the door. Right? If you're going to come into this room, these are the things you got to check at the door. Check your privilege in this context means dead, great, small. 
Those of us who have lived with privilege, those of us who have been denied privilege will all face judgment together, right? Whether you're rich or poor, whatever your race, whatever your gender, the throne in this vision is the great leveler. You're not going to be able to call your lawyer, okay? You're not going to be able to access your bank account. You're not going to be able to, dead, great, small, everybody together, right? You, we say this all the time in Christianity, don't we? All ground is level at the foot of the cross. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter where you come from, you come to Jesus and he will give you the same eternal life that he gives to the king of England if the king of England will accept it. And we believe that. Well, here we're reminded that the same thing is true at the great white throne. All ground is level before this throne, rich and poor and influential and non-influential, kings and paupers, all are going to stand together and we're all going to watch as two sets of books are open. These two are symbolic. There's a group of multiple books that symbolize the lives of everybody who stands before this throne and they're contrasted with a single Lamb's Book of Life. We're going to unpack all that here in just a minute, but for now I want you to see this. All societal distinctions, all privilege, all additional resources are gone. There's no way for anybody in the world who has ever lived to avoid this moment because your daddy can afford a better lawyer. It ain't coming. Dead, great, and small. Naked, completely resourceless before the throne. Check your privilege because whatever it is that makes you think even subconsciously, I'm going to be the exception to the rule. I'll work the system. I'll figure it out. No, you will be judged. So motivation number one is escape that judgment while you can. Number, motivation number two is check your privilege. Motivation number three, you do those two things by examining your faith. Look at verse 12. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Now, now statements like that shock us sometimes in the Christian world. Whoa, 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 whoa. I'm judged according to what I did? Yeah. I thought I was saved by faith. You are. Are you confused? If you are, I'm going to tell you why. Not, may, may not even necessarily be your fault. But you as a product of Western culture in which even the drunk laying on the, on the park bench with a brown bag in his hand who says, oh, Jesus, is considered a Christian. We have been baptized by cheap grace. Wait a minute. I thought it was just, I just had to affirm a set of beliefs. Like, what do I, what do my works have to do with anything? Well, to that question, scripture has an answer you might not like very much. James 2.14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? It's a rhetorical question that says, uh, if you have faith that you confess that makes no discernible difference, produces no transformation toward righteousness, that, then what, what you have is not going to save you, right? If I give this to you and go, all right, if I give this set of keys, which is way bigger than it should be, and I say, you know, go to my house, the key will get you in. And you can take X, Y, Z. You can have it, okay? And you use this one. You're not getting into the house because this one is the key to my truck. It'll start up my truck, although most of you, it's a stick, so most of you can't drive it, but nonetheless, it'll start up my truck, but it will not open 
right? Like, so I think about the ridiculousness of like comedian Stephen Wright who said one time, he said, I accidentally stuck my car key in my apartment door and I turned it and the building started up, right? <laughs> we laugh at stuff like that because we know it's absurd, right? So if you come back to me going, I used the key. No, yeah, not the right one. Which one is it exactly? There it is. I usually just do a garage code. I do it the easy way, right? That's the one, all right? So what James is saying is, if you say you have this, but it doesn't get you in, it, it's not doing what it ought to do, what you really have is this, and the question you need to be asking is, can this save you? And it's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. No, Calvin put it this way. Faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is not alone. It's not alone. James goes on, as if you didn't need it to get worse already. James 2.19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. I believe Jesus died and rose again. I believe that we're having this issue right now within a denomination of churches we belong to. Where we, we, we got a bunch of just egg-headed fundamentalist guys who think it's all about doctrine. Like you can be a royal jack wagon as long as you believe all the right things. Right? I believe, I, I've signed the Chicago Statement of, on, on Biblical Inerrancy. I have signed the Danvers Statement on Biblical Complementarity. I, I have signed the Nicene Creed. I have signed this and that. I, I confess all of it. All of my theological T's are crossed. All of my theological I's are dotted. I, my theology is impeccable. Yeah, so's the devil's. What's the difference between you and him? Am I saying truth isn't important? I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying there's a kind of belief that does not transform, and we know that because there's not a person in this room, me included, that has a more perfect theology than Satan. Satan's a better theologian than your pastor. He's got it all figured out. It's one of the reasons he's so maddened right now and frustrated. He knows better than any of the rest of us. And none of that produces hope for him. Judged according to what they had done. This is a warning that when judgment comes, Jesus is not just going to separate wheat from chaff and sheep from goats. He's going to separate mere confession from actual conversion. And if you think that contradicts the Christian gospel of grace, you don't understand grace. I say that with love towards you, but you don't. Listen to these Words from Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. What is that but grace? That's grace. What can a dead man do to raise himself from the dead? The answer is nothing. Someone has to breathe life into that dead soul. That comes only by the action of God, which is why he says, by grace you have been saved and raised us up. You don't get saved by what you do. Raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. One of these days God's going to get glory all of us, as we stand before his throne. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. 
This, by the way, that definite article relates back to the faith, not even the grace. So you know what Paul's saying here? You've been saved by grace through faith, and that faith, you didn't even conjure that up on your own. It had to be given to you. That ability had to be given to you by God. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. You're like, okay, now I'm really confused. Well, read the next sentence. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. God didn't save you just to take you to heaven. Otherwise, he would have dropped you dead the moment you believed. God saved you. He saved me to make us more like Jesus. You're like, well, well, then why doesn't he do that quicker? Well, I don't know about you, but I know my own heart well enough to know it would probably kill me. Right? We're going to burn this out slowly so that we don't kill the boy. Right? This is what we're going to do. This is what Scripture teaches us about works. They do not save. They reveal. They say something about you and me. They reveal your character. They reveal your values. They reveal your... This is why Jesus says that out of, the, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Yeah, What comes out of your mouth is a reflection of whether what is in your heart is, is truly righteous. The old has passed away. The new has come. 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says we need to examine ourselves on that basis to see whether we are in the faith because works, though they do not save, brothers and sisters, are the most reliable indicator of your faith. This separation of belief and behavior has sent more people to hell in the West than probably anything else in the last 100 years. Faith that saves is never alone. So let me ask you a question. How are your works? How are they? John tells us in his first letter, the one who says, I have fellowship with him, but perpetually walks about in darkness is a liar and does not practice the truth. That day of judgment is coming. You will stand before this throne. And it is God's love for you that begs you in this moment through this vision, make sure you have the real thing before you get there. Examine your faith. Motivation number four, long with each other and with the Lord for the end of death. Now, this is a triumphant verse. Verse 14, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Why would we look forward to a day like this? Because it's going to bring about the final end of death. Hades is here a reference to the grave. And the grave and death which makes graves necessary, are both hurled into the lake of fire. They're brought to an end. They will never touch the earth again. You remember 1 Corinthians 15, 26, Paul tells us that death is the last enemy that God will defeat. And that defeat is called the second death. And we see this clear picture of it right here. It, it works kind of like this. The first death is coming for all of us, regardless of whether you're saved or lost. If you know Jesus, if you don't know Jesus, you are going to die. That's coming. If Jesus doesn't return first, and all of us have experienced those moments gathered around a graveside, you felt that sting. We felt that we, our own family felt it last December with my father-in-law and the previous October with my own mother. The sting you feel in that moment is a mere microcosm of the curse of death that was brought on all of the created order by our first parents. And the hope we read here is the hope that was promised us in Genesis 3.15. When the Lord said to the serpent, 
in front of Adam and Eve. I'm going to initiate warfare on you. And the one who crushes your head, like, I'm, I'm going to send the Messiah to fix this. Jesus has come. He's made the down payment. He is going to come again. And when he does, this will be the second death. And it's been well stated many, many times before. If you've only been born once, you are going to die twice. But if you've been born twice, you only have to die once. That's the message here. I mean, it's the, the great white throne begins, it brings with it the end of the second death. But there's only one way to that victory. Here's motivation number five. Don't let go of Jesus. So here's where the hope comes from. Verse 15. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I remember the first time I read this as like a nine-year-old kid. It scared me. Like, is my name going to be there? Right? I've been through, you know, Christian versions of haunted houses that include this big scene of a judgment throne. And, and there's two people that come forward and one of them, your name is here. You may go to heaven. Your name is not here. You may go to hell. And it just, it kind of, it, it's, it's a, it's scary. Let's unpack this a little bit, though. What, what's, this, what's this book? What is this Lamb's book of life? Two books are going to be open. That's what we're told here. The book of life belongs to the Lamb. It's his book. Okay? While apparently the names of all the redeemed are contained in it, the book belongs to him. And then there's my book and your book and your book, and your book. You get the picture, right? There, there are two records that are symbolized here. The, the first one is mine, and I gotta be honest with y'all. Probably, I've probably stocked this up worse than any of the rest of you because I'm a pastor, okay? I'm not looking forward to the day when that book gets open. You will going to, as best I understand this text, all of you will be there when it happens, and it will shock you, the things I did, the things I thought about doing, the corrupt motivations for even the good stuff I did. Some of you are going to marvel in that moment and go, that guy was our pastor? That's the book on me. Now, I'm not feeling too bad about it because it's also the book on you. Sin after sin after sin, after sin. So here's my hope. Another book's going to be opened. The Lamb's Book of Life. That book doesn't list my deeds. It lists his deeds. Deeds done on behalf of sinners like me and sinners like you. And at the judgment, the book on me and you is going to be opened, and then the book of the Lamb is going to be opened. And if your name is in that book, then that book is going to be placed over the other book, and in the place of my deeds, the one occupying the great white throne sees only his deeds. And that's how I get there. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. I, I can't get there any other way. And if your name is not found there, 
then you are judged on the basis of your own works and you join the beast and the false prophet and the devil and his angels and the grave and death itself in the lake of fire. And guys, I'm not just telling you this as a preacher. I'm telling you this as a trophy of God's grace myself. The Lamb's book of life. The Lamb's book of life. <laughs> the very righteousness of Jesus. We Sometimes we sing a song here called the doxology. It's an old song that's sang every Sunday in a lot of more liturgical churches, but, but typically we only sing one verse. One of these days I'm going to convince our worship people to sing the whole thing. Because it starts out like this. Your perfect law exposes me. I feel my sin and desperate need. My best good works are powerless to satisfy your righteousness. But there is one who lived for me. His life, my only victory. His death forever sealed in time that I am his and he is mine. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, you heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. That's the picture we see here. His deeds, eliminating mine, that very righteousness of Jesus, the only hope any of us have, it's promised to you, to me, to everybody, if we take it based on the death of Jesus for our sins and the resurrection of Jesus that guarantees our eternal life. That's your only hope. It's my only hope. We get a really, really small glimpse of this every time we attend a funeral. I said, we, we, we got a lot of babies being born, and I'm grateful for that. But over the course of the next month, we're also going to lay more people than I'd like to to rest. Number of families in this room grieving right now, and you've lost your loved one. And when you grieve, it's a reminder of the curse. See, there wouldn't be any tears if there weren't death, and there wouldn't be any death if there weren't for sin. So we're grieving the brokenness of the world, your sins and, and my sins that, that bring about the nature of the world we live in. And, and that's never more evident than when death takes somebody we love away from us. But what do you do when somebody dies who had no real relationship with Jesus? If that's true of you, what will we do with you when you die? You say, well, I signed a card, I prayed a prayer, I, I know I... Well, you know, I, I know, I, I remember distinctly being at the graveside of someone who did not know the Lord. The last time I saw her, pleading with her, she just didn't believe. And being at that graveside after grieving myself for some time and having relatives trying to talk her into heaven, and all I could really do was just stand there in silence. I mean, you don't, you don't argue with people at the graveside. That's just, that's about as anti-pastoral as it gets. But you're just, like, you're just standing there going, I, I know they live like the devil. I know they didn't do that. I know that, but maybe they did that. I, that, that sentiment, I, gosh, I wish it were true. It's not, I owe you the truth. That's not within a thousand miles of what God's word tells us. And for those who die without Christ, it is just the beginning. 
you, like that rich man in, in Luke 16, will open your eyes in hell and you will experience that judgment until you are resurrected to stand before the throne we see in this text today when your wicked deeds are accounted for and you stand naked with no resources to deliver you and no advocate to plead your case. For the unbeliever, physical death is just the beginning. But for the believer, physical death is the end of death. I think you'd have to be a fool not to take advantage of this. See, I'll have to stand before that throne just like you. But, but what will be judged is not what I did with my life, but what Jesus did with his. And that's the only reason this boy here is well done, good and faithful servant. It's the only reason I hear the phrase, enter into eternal joy. And I'm going to hear all of that only by the grace of God made manifest to me in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. I will fall at his feet in that moment in a puddle of gratitude and joy. And that can be your experience as well. So here's the big question. Is your funeral going to be the end of death for you or just the beginning? Which is it going to be? A great white throne is in your future and mine. It's fact, it's an hour closer now than it was when you walked in here. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. There's refuge in him. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for these people who are gathered. And I thank you for a loving, I thank you for your love which, which motivates you to tell us the truth. And so, Father, as we consider how we respond today to what your word has taught us, I pray that your Holy Spirit would awaken and quicken the souls and the hearts of people who perhaps for a long, long time have just never known what it is to have their sins forgiven. May they walk out of here knowing that today. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.